Hey guys, let me tell you about the sponsor for today's episode. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast opportunities such as the one I'm doing right now. They have host read ads, interview segments, and more. The great thing about Podcorn is there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and pick opportunities right on the platform. You set your own rates and you collaborate with brands directly. The best thing is that you never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn will support you every step of the way to ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work you do. Click the link on my show notes page to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. The American History Podcast bonus episode. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean All right, so welcome back to the show. Today we've got a special 4th of July treat for all of you. We are talking to author Eric Dolan, the author of the just-released book, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. And we're happy to have him on the show. He's written a number of great books. I suggest that you should check all of them out, of course. I will have a link to Amazon in the show notes page, so you can go check out this book, because I think you're really going to love it. Now, Eric, um, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Great. So let's just get started. Um, and this book, basically give the listeners uh, kind of a, an overview. What What is this book about? Well, it's about privateers in the American Revolution, and privateers were armed vessels that were owned and outfitted by private individuals, and they were given a government permission to capture enemy ships during times of war. And that permission came in the form of something called a letter of mark, which is a formal legal document that outlined the responsibilities of the privateer and the privateersmen on board the privateer. And uh, then if that privateer, and when I refer to privateer, that's the vessel, the men on board are privateers men to try to keep it less confusing. But when a privateer captured an enemy ship, a British ship in this case, or a neutral ship that was carrying armaments to the British Army or the British Royal Navy, uh, they had to bring the prize, that's what it was called, the prize vessel back into port for an adjudication process to determine whether it was a valid prize. And in most instances it was, but maybe they captured a neutral ship that wasn't taking stuff to the uh, British military, or maybe they yeah. captured a, another friendly ship out there. But let's say that you brought in a prize and it's a valid prize, deemed a valid prize, then they get to sell it at an auction. They sell the ship and all the cargo on board and 50% of the profits from that sale goes to the owner of the privateer and any investors. And the other 50% gets to be split between the captain and all the men on board the privateer. So there was definitely a profit motive involved, but also, as I point out, I think rather strongly in the book, mm -hmm. privateersmen were just as patriotic as the rest of American citizenry. And uh, it wasn't just privateers that were lured by the option for profit. Uh, people that were in the Continental Army, the Continental Navy, there also was a profit incentive there as well. 
Okay, so that that's a great summation. Um, who were some of the men that were manning these ships? I mean, I was in the Navy myself, and so I'm, I'm often interested in kind of this idea of you know, who were these guys? I mean, oftentimes the Royal Navy impressed men into service. So right. how did, did the Americans, was there any impressment, or was this all simply the pay was good? What was it? Yeah, no, there was no impressment on the part of the Americans. Uh, the because of the opportunity to profit, especially if you had a successful cruise, it got a lot of uh, mariners and fishermen who were basically put out of work because of all the British uh, restrictions on American commerce during the American Revolution. They were looking; they they were eager for an outlet for their skills and an opportunity to make money. So what would happen is the owner of the privateer would often pick a captain that he already was familiar with uh, through the merchant trade or fishing or or some other uh, capacity. But then the men on board the privateer, there would be an advertisement placed in local newspapers, essentially inviting all of them down to the local pub where they would be plied with plenty of liquor. And one uh-huh. thing that you when you read about this era, boy, everybody was drinking all the time, it seems. And I, I have yeah. an accounting of one hearty welcome, as they called it. Uh, at a local pub, and the amount of alcohol that was consumed was truly astonishing. But that's not the reason the men signed off, uh, signed on. They weren't duped into it because they were drunk. It was just a nice way of welcoming them on board and uh, getting them to sign the articles of the agreement, which many, many men were very willing to do, much to the dismay of the Continental Navy that was continually hemorrhaging men because they wanted to leave Navy ships to go serve on privateers. So that was the way, and, and who they were was basically the probably on the order of 20 to 30,000, if not more, men served on these privateers. And most of them were in their early to mid-20s. Uh, a lot of them had maritime experience. They'd be former fishermen, former merchant mariners. Uh, a number of men who served in the Continental Navy would also serve on America's privateers. So there was sort of a, a cross-pollination going on there. But quite a few men that served on privateers were what were called landsmen that had no maritime experience. And that must have been a harrowing experience the, the yeah. first couple of weeks on the ship, getting used to it, trying to get all the terminology down, uh, trying to avoid seasickness and getting your legs under you. So they were, they were pulled from all parts of the, the colonies, and uh, they, they uh, sort of the overall, the 30,000-foot view, and the, the reason that I was very excited about this book is that these privateers, there were nearly 2,000 of them, 2,000 American privateers, and they captured nearly 2,000 British ships during the war, and they absolutely had a significant impact on the outcome of the war and helped us win our independence, along with many other factors. There is no one single factor that can account for our success. And as George Washington said, it was a standing miracle that we won anyway. And there were so many different elements that went into it. And, And the one thing, when you read about the American Revolution, it is absolutely amazing how tenuous of a prospect it was for so long. And if the British, which were 
clearly the most powerful country in the world at that time and had by far the most powerful navy. They were the lords of the sea. If they hadn't been so arrogant at the outset of the conflict and they hadn't mm -hmm. assumed that Americans were just rabble in arms and wouldn't fight for themselves, uh, I think the outcome of the war might have been much different. But uh, they act that way in the beginning and the war dragged on for many years and privateers along with land battles and the Continental Navy and state navies all contributed to our success. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating tale. Um, I had a, a different question, but I want to ask one first before that, and this just popped into my head. Um, but why is this aspect of the Revolutionary War period either unknown or it's just <laughs> I mean, you know, I've got my master's degree, so I've read a lot about this. I'm not, this isn't my area of specialty, but, um, you know, the, I, I can't ever remember any books really touching on this aspect. And wh why do you think that is? Well, I, your experience is not unique. Uh, most books on the American Revolution, about maritime aspects of the revolution, do not dwell very much, if at all, on privateering. And it's, it's sort of hard to say why something didn't happen, but I think there are a couple of clear reasons. One of which is that privateering prior to the American Revolution, and it goes all the way back to the 13th century in Europe, uh, had kind of a bad name because there were many instances in which, quote unquote, privateers were acting like nothing else besides pirates. They were basically pirates. They had letters of mark, but they were going out and pillaging ships uh, of countries that their country was not at war with at the time. So they were nothing more than pirates. So pir privateering had a bad reputation, even though during the American Revolution, they operated under a strict set of regulations and they didn't have any incentives to veer into out and out piracy. And most of the privateers and privateersmen acted very Responsibly, so there's a there's the lingering uh, quality of that bad reputation of privateering. Also, privateers didn't have like the Continental Navy, even though it disbanded at the end of the American Revolution. Essentially, it came it reconstituted itself towards the end of the century, and then now is one of our most important uh, institutions in society. And yeah. a lot of people are invested in telling the story of the con of the Navy as it evolved and grew and and its successes and failures. There's no uh, counterpoint part uh, group. There's no uh, parallel group for privateersmen that were acting sort of as a public relations outfit, not in a negative sense, but. Uh, there, there's no organization that was invested in sharing the story of privateers and privateersmen either after the American Revolution or since. Also, a lot of privateersmen were not well known. They were, you know, they 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 were the the average guy in the in the colonies at the time and very few of them wrote down their experiences so you have to pull together the stories from contemporary newspaper accounts diaries comments on the part of continental congress members and that was different for the navy there were a lot of very high profile people involved from the beginning and they made a point of recording their own history so you don't have as much to draw on when you're talking about privateering as you might like to to develop mm -hmm. a uh, a a deep and 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 rich 
history of what they did. Uh, and that's why today I think we just don't have much of a collective memory of privateering, not only during the American Revolution, but also during the War of 1812, where it was also important, as was the Navy's service. So it just got sort of forgotten over time. And, uh, and I, part of the reason for the book is I'm hoping to resuscitate it a little bit. And that's not to say, I mean, there have been books that have said privateering was important. But what I felt had never been done is a real in-depth book that looked at all the different aspects of privateering, how it evolved, and what its impacts were to the war. Sort of a comprehensive narrative uh, take on privateering during the American Revolution. And that's what I hope Rebels at Sea is. Excellent, excellent. Let's pause here for a moment for some messages from our sponsors. Okay, great. Um, we're back, and um, let me just ask you: Your book has all the usual suspects in it, you know, um, from this time period. You've got George Washington and um, Benedict Arnold, and so forth and so on. But you've also got a set of characters that are less well known. Um, yep. And if you had to pick one of the less well known, who who is your favorite that stood out from this, um, from your research that you did during this time period? I'd have to say that it's Jonathan Harridan, the guy that I start off the, the book with. He was a privateer, privateersman out of Salem, Massachusetts, and he had a successful record at, as a uh, part of the Massachusetts State Navy. He was the captain of a ship called the Tyrannicide, an appropriately named ship. <laughs> he, had a, he had a dispute over pay, so he left and he became a privateersman, and he captured uh, many ships. He brought in hundreds of cannons and an equal number of prisoners. But the one experience that I recount in the book, which I think symbol uh, sort of is emblematic of his whole life, is his uh, fight against the Achilles not far from Bilbao, Spain. He, in seven, the summer of 1780, actually early June of 1780, he was heading over to Bilbao, Spain to do some trading, but he was a letter of mark. And now it's a privateer that could both do commercial trading and also attack British ships. And then there's a straight privateer, which only attacks British ships. But he was on a letter of mark. He was captain of the Pickering out of Salem. And he had captured a British merchant ship called the Golden Eagle. And then when he got in sight of Bilbao, Spain, which they were our allies during this part of the war, uh, a very large ship was in his way, the Achilles. And to give you a si give you a sense of the differential in strength, the Pickering at the time had 38 men on board and 16 cannons. The Achilles had 130 men on board and 43 cannons. And Harridan knew this because he had British prisoners on board who were very familiar with the Achilles. And one of them told him how powerful the Achilles was. And Harridan, who had a reputation of being cool, calm, and collected in times of great stress and battle, said, I shan't run from her. And he, and he didn't. Uh, th this was late in the day when they encountered each other. So uh, he went to sleep. He, he knew that the next morning there would likely be a battle. And he was asked his men to rouse him if the Achilles made started coming toward the Pickering. The next morning he awoke 
cool, calm and collected, walked around the deck. He realized that he was shorthanded. So he offered the British prisoners on board a great financial deal if they would fight with him. And 10 of them stepped forward and said, we will fight with you. So he expanded his force to 48 instead of 38. And then the Achilles uh, started its approach. It took back the Golden Eagle, which is a British ship the Pickering had earlier captured. And this two-hour battle ensued. And what's fascinating is the people in Bilbao, Spain, had caught wind of this battle to be offshore and about a thousand people had come down to the beach to watch the Americans and the British square off. Now, the Pickering did not succeed in capturing the Achilles, but it severely damaged the ship, especially when it used bar shot, which is essentially two cannonballs connected by an iron bar that destroyed the rigging and sails and perhaps some of the masts. The Achilles was still a very large and uh, fast ship. And Harridan chased it, but it finally got the better of him and went over the horizon. Harridan turned around, picked up the Golden Eagle, recaptured his earlier prize, and then went into the port of Bilbao, where he was treated like a local hero and feted <laughs> by the uh, officials. And then on the way back to Salem, he captured three more British prizes and brought them into Salem. And when he died in 1803 of tuberculosis, the local newspaper uh, basically said that he ranks right among the greatest of the uh, maritime heroes that the American Revolution has produced. And I, th I think that's accurate. One of his crewmen referred to Harridan as uh, the perfect hero. <laughs> And he just, he just, I like the story because he was successful. He was very matter of fact. He wasn't a braggart. He had a job to do and he did it and he did it well. And he gained the trust and confidence of his men and left behind enough of a paper trail so we could write about him. So he's one of the most interesting uh, privateers in the book, privateersmen in the book. There's uh, there are others, uh, you know, Daniel Waters, who is the captain of the Thorn out of Newburyport, had a very famous battle with two of the largest British privateers not far from New York Harbor, the uh, Governor Ty Tyron and the Sir William Erskine British privateers. And he actually captured both of them, but the Tyron escaped. But in the end, uh, the. Uh, the uh, Th Daniel Waters and the Thorn lost about 18 men killed and wounded, but the Governor Tyron, which got away, when it pulled into Antigua, there was a local newspaper that reported that 20 men on board that British privateer had been killed and almost as many wounded in its encounter with the thorn. So that's another thing that I found fascinating about this book. I mean, I didn't know a lot about privateering before I started the book, and that's all my books are like that. I pick topics that I don't know a lot about because I want to really dive in and be excited and learn a lot of new things while working on the book. And these privateers, one of the things in the in the in the books that do discuss privateers, there's often a comment that they shied away from fighting. And in my research, I found 
Not that the exact opposite was true. Yes, privateers and privateersmen were smart. If they were encountered a ship or a British naval ship that was much more powerful than them, yes, they wanted to flee. That was the smartest thing to do. But there are numerous battles between privateers and British ships that are incredibly deadly. There's this one battle mm -hmm. where one of the combatants says, you know, we saw blood running out of the scuppers because so many yeah. people were wounded and killed on the deck that it was a, it was literally a bloody mess. So mm -hmm. these people had a lot of guts. A anybody that goes out in the open ocean, even during times mm -hmm. of peace in the 1700s, had a lot of uh, guts <laughs> because yeah. you could you could get creamed by a storm, you could founder on a reef, uh, a pirate. If there are pirates around, you might be attacked, especially in the far eastern waters. So it was a scary prospect. But then throw a war into the mix, and it becomes even more dangerous. So privateersmen had a lot of guts, a lot of courage. So did Continental Navy uh, sailors. And uh, the people in the state navies and as well the Continental Army, the people who fought in the army. I mean, it, you, you often wonder, what would you have done if you had been alive during the American Revolution? How would have you fought for your country? And uh, I don't know what the answer to that is for, for me, that's for sure. But I, I know that it would take a lot of courage uh, to, to fight on the behalf of your country and put your life on the line, literally. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I've been on – I was in the Navy, and I was on nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. And um, when I read stuff like this, I, I can never – it never fails that I think these guys were crazy brave or just crazy. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I used to love reading um, Patrick O'Brien's books. Um, I rewatched Master and Commander just a few weeks ago, and, you know, when you just see it, it's the, 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 the danger that was just involved just in a storm – much yes. less the the naval actual the naval combat was just it was crazy so um yeah these guys my hats off to them any one of them <laughs> they they were far braver than i am let me tell you um well, that brings up a question actually i've got two but i just thought of another one but uh, my my original question was how did the british and especially the royal navy how did they view the american privateers oh they they it's funny Americans learned how to use privateering from the British, British tutelage. I mean, during the during the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, at a time when we were still part of Great Britain, there were numerous privateers that were sent out from the American colonies and fought on behalf of their the mother country against France. So Americans were quite familiar with privateering, and that's part of the reason why they turned to it so quickly during the American Revolution, courtesy of British tutelage. <laughs> so, but the yeah. British, even though the Britain and England before it had used privateering many, many times over the centuries, they still viewed 
they viewed all Americans as rebels and and sort of breaking the law by wanting to break free and declare their independence. But they viewed privateers in particular, privateersmen, as pirates, nothing more yeah. than pirates, and uh, you know committing treason. They, they if they had their druthers, they would have just killed all of them. But that created a problem because they started capturing American privateers. And uh, the the men on board had to be thrown into jail. Well, technically, Britain didn't want to recognize American sovereignty. So yeah. Americans were still technically British citizens. So they had a right to habeas corpus. They had a right to be brought before a judge and have the charges against them read out in their day in court. They couldn't just be held in jail interminably. And so that created one problem. Another problem is British uh, naval forces and uh, used to say to the privateersmen when they brought them on board, if they were captured, you know, we're going to hang you for piracy. But they couldn't very well do that because if they started hanging American privateers, then the Americans would start hanging British soldiers that they had captured. So it put Britain in sort of a stick, uh, tricky position. And what Lord North, the prime minister, decided to do, he felt the war was only going to go on for a short period of time. Boy, was he mistaken. And what uh -huh. he decided to do is he said they passed a law that essentially said that any ship, American ship attacking a British ship at sea was guilty of treason and could be held. The people that were on the attacking American ship could be held in jail for an indeterminate amount of time without having their day in court, essentially, suspending habeas corpus. So th they were in this netherworld, and that's how we had so many Americans, not just privateersmen, but uh, Navy men and soldiers, which were who were thrown into British prisons in England. And what was really bad were the British prison ships in New York, predominantly, and the Jersey was the worst of all. It was called Hell Afloat. And most of the men who were thrown into the Jersey uh, died, didn't make it out alive. So to get back to your original question, the British despised – they didn't like the Americans. <laughs> they made that clear by their actions before the American Revolution. But they really despised the Americans who were standing up to uh, Great Britain, whether it be on land or at sea. But they had a special level of resentment for the privateersmen who they viewed as just out-and-out -out pirates. They had a little bit of grudging respect for General George Washington and the Continental Army and for the Continental Navy, but that did not extend to privateers. It's, it's interesting. I had a note um, as I was reading the book that the British kind of sowed the seeds of their own destruction. Um, the, more <laughs> that they, the more that they tried to quash stuff like this, um, the more they just kind of fed into it, I think, with um, that heavy handedness, but also, as you said earlier, just that kind of arrogance, right? Um, yeah. they, they just really couldn't help themselves, it seems. And the more they, they tried, the, the worse it got. So my last yes. question, we're talking just to remind the listeners, we're talking to Eric Dolan, the author of Rebels at Sea. Um, I suggest you check it out again. There will be a, a link in the show notes page to Amazon. You can pick yourself up a copy of this book. It's really good, really fascinating. Um, but what was the impetus of this book? I mean, you mentioned <laughs> just a little while ago that, you know, I like to, to, to do these books that I don't really know much about so I can learn as I'm going. But yeah. how did you come across all of this? And, you know, what, what, what got this started? Well, it traces back to uh, 
my uh, my work on pirates, uh, my book Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates, focuses on real pirates, but also talks about quote unquote privateers who were nothing more than pirates with with a piece of paper. And during King William's War in the late 1600s and after the War of the Spanish Succession, a, a lot of privateers that were saying they were privateers were not. And they were acting like out and out pirates. And at the end of the talks that I would give on that book, people would say, you know, aren't privateers just pirates? And I'd say, yes, in the context of what I'm talking about, the late 1600s, early 1700s, there are many instances where these vessels and individuals that received letters of mark and were supposed to be fighting against the French, say, on behalf of the British, they didn't do that. Instead, they attacked Indian ships that were in the Red Sea and brought back the riches to the American colonies. They were out and out pirates. And so I said, yes, in that context, but I, I knew a very little bit about privateering during the American Revolution. And I said, there are other times, and I think the revolution is in a, a case in point, when privateers were not, in fact, pirates, but I didn't know a lot about it. And I was looking around for a book topic. I always loved the American Revolution, and a lot of my books have small sections on the American Revolution because the book's trajectory goes through that time frame. But mm -hmm. I said, how could I write a book about the American Revolution, but that is also maritime, since I like maritime stories in particular? And that's when I started thinking more seriously about privateering. And it really was launched from all those discussions that I had at my book talks on Black Flags, Blue Waters, so many people bringing up privateering and also what I had written about in that book. And it became almost a natural segue to say, okay, let's look at what privateering was like during the American Revolution. Awesome. That That's, that's so great. And um, you did a great job. I think this is one of the most fascinating books um, that I've had the opportunity to read and just really Thanks. showed an aspect to this time period that, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, having been in the Navy, I didn't even really <laughs> um, think about um, what was the, the naval aspect of this war. You know, you just kind of get so caught up, I guess, in what's kind of been presented that I, I, I regret to say that I had never thought of what was the, the the naval aspect to all this? And I guess part of it was I just thought, well, the British Royal Navy, they were the best in the world. You know, you'd be stupid to take them on. Why would you want to do that? And so mm -hmm. I, I just kind of assumed that nobody ever did during this war. But it turns out that there's a huge story here um, for everybody to, to, to discover. So thank you very much for this work. It's awesome. Well, thank you uh, for having me on. And um, it's great that you enjoyed the book. Thank you so much. All right, guys. So that's our episode for today. I Once again, happy 4th of July to everybody out there. And please do yourself a favor. Go get yourself a copy of Rebels at Sea by Eric J. Dolan. You're going to love this book. And um, I know I did. So thanks very much. And we'll see you guys next time. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. Thank you.